welcome to Old Testament in Faith, part of the In Faith series of podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Didek, and this week we're looking at Genesis 2 and what it means to be married in as small of a nutshell as we can fit, discussing why God created marriage, how he did it, and lots of other good topics. Plenty of New Testament in this one too, but still bringing the old back to life. Let's check it out. Kind of had a little bit of a weird day today before recording this, and I think I'm coming to a point where I don't know how people work a full-time job and then work almost a second full-time job trying to be a writer. I don't know what it is. Part of me thinks it's kind of part of my, you know, jack of all trades, master of none personality. Like whatever that is, I don't know. It's weird. I'm and I'm kind of this is definitely off the cuff. I just I can't seem to get myself to devote my mind or my passion to one thing for very long. And that's something that I've, you know, from a very young age, I was a very fickle child. Changed my interests on a daily basis, sometimes multiple times a day. Sometimes it was, you know, it'd be a while. Again, that was something I did at a young age. It kind of helps as a writer to a degree to have varied interests. So I, you know, pick up different ideas from, you know, all the different things that I look into and read. And so I'm able to bring into, you know, my books, a lot of different individual ideas, I guess. But then it's kind of weird here because I spend a good chunk of the week with Cleveland Metro Parks now and kind of focused on trail work and the outdoors and things like that. That by the time the weekend comes, like I'm having fun doing the podcast. So that's working out. But, you know, I had this whole big schedule of marketing and writing and working all these different things and doing the podcast. And I don't know, I just, as much as that dream is still alive, you know, I really enjoyed the time off that I had between jobs. And being able to focus on the writing and being at home and the freedom that that kind of gave me to do different things. But can't seem to get myself to like really make the sacrifice to devote all my energy, whatever energy is left over after the job, to sit down and work on writing and work on the writing career. So obviously writing is not going to go away. I've been working on this series for too long. I still really enjoy it. I'm still excited about continuing to write it. But for now, I really want to keep doing this podcast. That's a really big thing that I've really enjoyed. So we're going to go ahead and get into it because it's a it's going to be another long one. As I began working on this episode and then also looking ahead to the next few weeks, I did consider briefly renaming this series again to just Genesis in Faith because we're going to be spending a lot of time in just this one book. Now, I'm not actually going to change the name. It will still be called Old Testament in Faith, and we will be taking a journey eventually all the way through to Malachi. But I'm still kind of excited that my basic premise is ringing so true already, that the Old Testament is so slam full of good topics, that so much of it is so incredibly relevant to Christians today, and that we do ourselves a disservice by ignoring what amounts to a full three quarters of what God has communicated to us through his word. So we will eventually be skipping chapters, and you're not going to be hearing me read every verse of every chapter for the entire Old Testament. But for today, once again, you are. This time, I'm going to take my asides as we go, so you won't hear almost every verse twice like we did last week. I mean, hopefully you did enjoy that. The creation story is still a really awesome story, and I always enjoy hearing it again. And actually, as one of our first asides, I do still have a vision in my mind of a video to make out of that story, but sometime later. For now, let's start getting into the chapter. Chapter 2, from verse 4, where we ended last week, until the final verse at 25. 
This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Let's stop here for a few quick notes. This isn't a recap of the entire account that we're about to hear. Instead, here we're drawing out a few more details specifically about the creation of man and woman. And also, this isn't happening before the vegetation was created on day three. Rather, what it means by no shrub and no plant is more the idea of no farmed plants or cultivated plants. They were just the naturally occurring ones that God had made. This idea is reinforced by the phrase, there was no one to work the ground. So don't be confused by that. Picking back up in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay, so now we have man, Adam. And here's another opportunity to allow for some reconciliation between science and the Bible. When it says God formed a man from the dust of the ground, we might possibly interpret this as simply meaning man is made from the same stuff as the rest of creation, which we know, right? There aren't any special cells in our bodies or even really particular organs that exist only in our bodies and no other living creature. So we shouldn't be surprised when we share similar traits, similar forms and functions, and similar DNA with other animals. That does not have to mean we evolved from them, just that our physical bodies in and of themselves are not alien to the rest of creation. The difference instead is that then God breathes the breath of life into us. And as we saw in chapter one, he made us in his image, in his likeness. That, too, we should not necessarily interpret literally as meaning God has arms, leg, torso, and head, because then monkeys would be made in the image of God as well. Rather, we possess free will and an eternal soul. Let's also make note for next week that verse 9 calls out two specific trees among all the rest of the trees in Eden, and his command to not eat from the one particular tree. That'll be important, and we'll recall it next week when we get into chapter 3. Also note the part where it says, The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. We're going to see that again next week as well. For now, let's pick back up in verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Pausing again, because even if you're not familiar with these verses specifically, if you are a Christian or have been around Christians for a while, you've probably heard the phrase, it's not good for man to be alone. This is another one that we like to use for our own purposes, especially when we're feeling lonely as men. Wishing and praying for a girlfriend or spouse, we feel the need to justify our desire by saying, well, it's not good for man to be alone. 
condescending women too, and some men, when they observe a man make a mistake when no one else is around to correct him or keep him from going astray, like to joke, well, see, it's not good for man to be alone, but we need to remember this. God makes this observation when there are no other living humans at all. There is Adam and there are animals. The point here is not that Adam lacks a wife, but that Adam has no other human beings to be around. God created us then to be in community. As we'll see a little bit later today, it's actually perfectly fine for a man or woman to be unmarried. In fact, it is considered preferable by both Paul and Jesus. But it is not good for man or woman to be outside of community. Animals are no substitute for human interaction. We sometimes like to think they are when our adorable, non-judgmental dogs grin and yip and bound into our arms no matter what kind of mood we're in. We like to think of that as unconditional love and of a sort that is difficult to find sometimes in human companions. But we were also made to be perfect, as we'll see more of next week especially. And to the extent we are not perfect, we need the community of others to help keep us on track. I've seen far too many people get into all sorts of trouble when they reject all advice from others and just pursue their own wishes. I know that's the popular attitude these days, and to be sure, you need to stay away from naysayers and those who don't believe in the work God has given you to do. But a truly loving human being can help you sort through your dreams, passions, and desires to help you sort out which ones are from God and which ones are not. It is not good for us to be alone in our fight against Satan and his schemes. And for that, no suitable helper could be found among animals. You might be thinking that Adam didn't need that help yet, but I'm fairly certain God knew what he was doing and what would soon be happening and that you and I would need all the help we could get. Let's pick up once more in verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is our most critical verse, and where we'll be spending the remainder of our time. Because this reality, perhaps more than any other, is so deeply mired in tradition and ceremony that no one so far that I've talked to has thought of it the way that I'm about to describe. And even those who seem to agree that what I'm thinking seems right only allow it kind of begrudgingly, like they're not sure if there's some danger lurking somewhere. And to be fair, this is such a departure from the norm that I'm not yet 100% convinced that I'm right. But here we have two chapters into the Bible, Creation is only just finishing up, and we're presented with this reality. A man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And this is incredible because this is the first instance of a spiritual reality manifesting in a physical one, right? I mean, beyond the existence of God and his commands manifesting as creation. But if we fast forward to Ephesians 5 verse 32, Paul writes to the church, and after quoting our Genesis verse, says, This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So at a time when only two people existed, Adam and Eve, God institutes for us an example that will eventually become the example of Christ and the church. I remember a few years ago when the national push to legalize gay marriage was succeeding, and a friend of mine observed that it should not be up to the states to define marriage. His contention being marriage as holy matrimony is, or should be, determined by the church. And it struck me because the state only took the responsibility to determine who was married or not after the church did. But back in Genesis, there was no church. There was only God. My contention is that if the church had not taken the responsibility from God in the first place, perhaps the state might not have eventually stepped in either. 
Now, to be fair, the state does have a vested interest in some responsibility of who is married or who is not. There is an economic benefit to marriage. Statistically, married couples are more likely to spend money that a single person would not. There are, of course, outliers, those whose personality is just to spend as much money as they can, with no thought to saving any of it. But in the main, married couples are better for the economy because they are willing to take on more risk, feeling safer that, if anything should happen to them, their partner will help keep everything afloat. So they spend more on houses, cars, and shopping, and end up putting more back into the economy than someone who is not married. So the question I found myself wrestling with some years ago is what defines marriage? When is a person married versus when they are not? There are plenty of scriptures about roles between husbands and wives. We've looked at them before, and some are in the Ephesians passage we referenced a minute ago. And there are plenty of verses about divorce. But when do those responsibilities take effect? When are they in force? That's what I found myself asking. Many of you will probably respond as soon as the pastor pronounces you husband and wife. And yet, as we've just looked at, Adam and Eve were united long, long before there were pastors, and almost impossibly long before the ceremonial, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Instead, here we see God taking a portion of Adam to form Eve, and this is why a man leaves his father and mother, and the two become one flesh. What is why? Because woman was taken from man. They were separated, one taken from the other's side. So God instituted marriage in order for the woman to return to the man's side and the two to become one flesh yet again. This is a creational reality, something that exists whether we will it or not. Not something dictated by the state or agreed upon by the church. Let's look at another interesting passage and another critical set of verses to understanding marriage. Matthew chapter 19 verses 3 through 12. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? We might ask, why does the state grant divorces, and why do churches marry believers who have been divorced? Verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Remember this verse because we're coming back to it shortly. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. And this is where I feel like Jesus in the guise of Christians today would soften their tone, right? Perfect opportunity to say, well, I'm not saying don't marry, just, I mean, there's grace for you even if you sin. So, you know, give it a shot, try to make it work as best you can, but if it's just not working out, then God will forgive you. But what does Jesus say instead? Verse 11, Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Wow. The disciples make a radical statement. Geez, it almost sounds better not to marry. And Jesus responds basically, yeah, it is. But not everyone can do that. But if you can, do it. I can only imagine the disciples, all virile young men, and at least one of them actually married, looking at each other like, who on earth could accept this? One more passage that also quotes our Genesis verse, and then we're going to look at a hard, scary, potential reality, and then work our way back through and see if it stands up. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. 
Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think Paul here is telling the church members in Corinth not to marry a prostitute? Do you think he's saying, don't take a prostitute and go to the synagogue and have the priest join the two of you in marriage? Do you think there were a lot of believers doing that? Or do you suppose there were believers trying to live out their freedom in Christ, going and having sex with prostitutes because either they were free or because of forgiveness through Christ? Let's back up and start in verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. It sounds more like they were trying to use their freedom to sin. But then this is interesting, isn't it? Paul here says, Don't have sex with a prostitute, because he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. No ceremony, no marital vows, no fancy reception, no marriage license or decree. Just uniting yourself with your spouse. So, wait, are we saying that just by having sex with someone, we're marrying them? Are we really saying that? Well, yes, we are. Or at least, I am. What does Jesus say? Back in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. To remind ourselves, adultery is defined by Strong's Concordance as to have unlawful intercourse with another's wife. So, first we have the reality that you can give your spouse a piece of paper that says divorce, but Jesus doesn't care. To then go have sex with another person, even one you lawfully marry according to the church and the state, you are still committing adultery. Second, the only exception according to this verse is sexual immorality. Meaning what? Meaning the divorce has already happened in the flesh. By having sex with someone who is not your spouse, you have disunited from the one, presumably faithful, spouse, and united yourself with another. The paper afterward only confirms the previous reality. Perhaps another question then we should ask, can you have sex before marriage? Big taboo in the church world, isn't it? Well, with this understanding, no, you cannot. You can have sex outside of marriage, but it's creationally impossible to have it before. As soon as you do it, you're married. Now, this might legitimately raise the question, what about rape? If sex is automatically uniting the two as one, what about that? And there are some interesting passages we're going to look at once we start reading the laws Moses gave the Israelites that might seem to support that notion. But I think as we'll see when we discuss what the culture was like back then, no, rape does not equal marriage. For one thing, if marriage is an image of Christ in the church, right away we know Christ doesn't force himself on us. And we certainly can't force ourselves onto God, not meaning that God would reject us if given the choice because he's already chosen us through Christ and it's our responsibility to say yes, but meaning that we can't come to him on our own terms, as if to say he must bend to our will or else. In such a manner of forcing ourselves onto God, the union simply doesn't happen. We cannot be followers of Christ if we presume to dictate the terms of our obedience. I hope that part makes sense. So now then you may be thinking, what about the vows? Don't those bind you? After all, we hear a lot about marriage being a covenant relationship, based on a covenant, not convenience. Without the covenant, there's no true marriage. Well, first, that's not strictly biblical. Well, it is, but there aren't any verses that define marriage by the covenant. Rather, in marriage being a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church, we can reason out that since one is a covenant relationship, so is the other. 
But in our Matthew verse a moment ago, Jesus doesn't acknowledge any sort of voluntary covenant, does he? Between the reality of Genesis 2, Jesus' words in Matthew, and Paul's writing to the Corinthians, the reality is that you enter that covenant whether you say it or acknowledge it. Once you are united, you're united, and nothing else matters. Okay, perhaps you're still with me, but aren't the vows still important? We should never break our promises. Well, true, we should never break our promises, but let's check this out. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Jesus' teaching says, Again you have heard it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Why, then, should vows made at the altar before priest or pastor and everyone else gathered be venerated more than any other promise? And don't we often go against our word? Maybe it's as simple as something like, I know I promised to do this or that, but I just got super busy today and I don't have time. I'll get to it tomorrow, okay? But how often do we say, yes, I'll do that today, and we don't do it, and no one blinks an eye? Yet here, Jesus is saying any oath more important than yes or no is from Satan, right? All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one, he says. So are we really saying that marriage ceremonies are from Satan? I'm actually not. I'm saying that investing them with a greater weight and authority than what God created in Genesis 2, affirmed through the word of his son in Matthew 9, and restated by Paul in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, is from Satan. Two more points and then we'll be done. First, consider again our analogy of the union between man and woman and the relationship being an image for Christ and the church. If we continue to kind of pull this out, what are some implications? Think of this. When does someone become a member of the body of Christ? When is someone saved? It's when they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, right? Romans chapter 10 verse 9. What purpose does baptism serve? Most people will say baptism is the outward sign of the inward change. We receive Christ into our hearts first, and then we are baptized in front of the church. Can we get baptized before we are saved? I mean, technically yes, but do we? No. Salvation first. A private union between the believer and Jesus first. Even if someone leads you in the prayer, the transaction is still unseen between you and Christ alone. Then comes the public ceremony of baptism to let everyone know the promise you have made in private. So why then in marriage do we conduct the public ceremony first and then the private one? except that it allows the church to determine who is married or not, and the state, because you're expected to go to them first, and let the priest or pastor say, I now pronounce you, as if it's up to them. Also regarding this relationship, remember how Jesus uses lots of parables to tell us what the kingdom of heaven is like, what spiritual realities are like. I love those. He uses natural phenomena to help us understand spiritual phenomena. And how fascinating is this? The spiritual phenomenon is the two become one flesh. Hmm, if only there were a physical, natural phenomenon we could use to understand it. How about the fact that two biological people literally become one? Completely separate eggs from the one are fertilized by the seed from a completely separate other. Different DNA, different body structures, different people. And yet, as if by some miracle, those two completely separate elements of two completely separate flushes become one. A baby is born, a combination of its two parents. And why does this happen? Because a priest or pastor decrees it is so? No, because of sex. One final stop, back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. Jesus again. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. How is this so? Well, imagine. You are supposed to be one flesh. You won't share a mind, and it's not like your individual dreams, passions, and desires will be a 100% match. But you are supposed to be functioning as one complete unit. In a healthy rendition of this reality, would your wife look at a beautiful woman lustfully? Would your husband look at a handsome man lustfully? True, there are perverse relationships out there where this is the case, but that isn't how God created it to be in the beginning. So by looking at another person besides your spouse with lustful thoughts, looking at them and thinking about them in a way that your spouse would not, are you not already committing adultery? Are you not already becoming two separate fleshes, disuniting what God has united? Seems to me like you are. Now, as I've said, I don't know if I'm entirely sold on this belief. The idea that it's impossible to have sex before marriage because sex is marriage is a difficult one especially, and I haven't worked through every implication that might bring to see if it matches scripture. And in John chapter 4 verse 18, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman at the well, you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. And I'm not sure yet what might be happening there. We assume she's sleeping with this sixth guy, but if Jesus acknowledges he is not her husband despite this, well, there could be other things going on, and that's one verse in the face of everything else we've looked at today, which seems pretty overwhelming. What I'm more concerned with presenting to you today are some questions for you to pursue, some thoughts to ponder. Maybe you've got some other verses that help things make sense to you, and that's fine. Oh, final verse from Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. I hope this has been helpful, or if not helpful, at least interesting. Join me again next week for chapter three, where things really start to heat up. Until then, keep the faith and keep it old school. Music